Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. Good morning. We are thankful that you're here. We are in the second week of a sermon series today called Return to Me, and we're studying from the book of Malachi. So if you have your Bible today, I want to ask you to take it and open it to a little past the middle of it, the very last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi. And if you don't have the Bible with you today, the words will be here on the screen uh, in front of you. Or of course, you can open your smartphone and see the heavenly glow as you turn to BibleGateway.com or something like that. But uh, we are thankful that you're here this morning. And we are in a, a kind of a unique sermon series as we wrap up this summer season. It's hard for us to believe that summer's coming to an end and the kids are going to be back in school. I know you're excited, right, kids? I'm not sure if you are, but the parents are glad to have some sort of routine, I'm sure. But in the midst of that, there are several words of instruction from the book of Malachi that I believe God wants us to, to hear today and to uh, apply today. Uh, when the book of Malachi was written, we understand that Malachi was the last prophet of the Old Testament. He was writing about 400 to 440 years before the birth of Christ. Uh, frankly, when Malachi was writing, it should have been a day of great excitement, a day of great celebration, a day of great joy amongst God's people. Uh, and the reason why that's the case is because God had been very, very good to them. God had blessed them greatly. When you read throughout the Old Testament and you read specifically about the Jewish people, we're reminded that they went through many seasons of discouragement, many seasons of hardship, many seasons, frankly, of great defeat. Uh, unfortunately for them, many times those circumstances were consequences of their own actions. They had disobeyed God. They had rejected God and rejected his word. And, and as a result of that, they experienced the consequences of that. And, and at times they were, spent time in bondage somewhere and they spent time in difficulty somewhere and hardship that they never even thought was possible, they often found themselves in. And kind of the Old Testament pattern is, is that they make a God, God brings them to a relationship, a covenant with him. He says, listen, if you obey me, I'll bless you. If you disobey me, uh, there, there'll be consequences as a result of that. And the Old Testament pattern is they reject God, they experience their consequences, then they repent, they get right with God, things are good for a season, and then they go through the same cycle again. They go right back to doing the things they shouldn't do. So throughout much of the Old Testament, we see them experiencing the consequences of their actions. Well, by the time we get to the book of Malachi, outwardly, it would appear that things are finally good. By the time we get to the book of Malachi, we see that the Jewish people have not only been delivered from Babylon, where they were once imprisoned as slaves, really, but they've been released to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild their lives. They've rebuilt their homes and they've rebuilt the temple so that they can worship God. They've now rebuilt the city walls because Nehemiah lived and ministered at the same time as Malachi. And so from the outward perspective, everything's going well. Our lives are being rebuilt. Our place of worship is being rebuilt. The city walls have been rebuilt. Our homes have been rebuilt. We're now worshiping God again. Outwardly speaking, everything looked like it was in order. But as the people are worshiping God, they begin to realize something is wrong. Something is missing. They're worshiping God, but God seems very distant. They're coming to a beautiful temple, but God seems to be missing. They're bringing their offerings to God, but it doesn't seem that God is pleased or accepting these things. And so they begin to wonder, where is God? What is going on? What is happening in this situation? So God raises up this prophet named Malachi to basically pull back the curtain to say, yes, you have an outward appearance. Yes, you have an outward form of worship. Yes, outwardly, it seems perhaps to many that things are okay. But God reminds them, I'm not looking at the outward appearance. I'm looking at the heart. I know the heart and the thoughts and the motives and the intentions. I see it all. And because of that, God begins to speak and to address some things that needed to be addressed in Malachi's day. And I am convinced that today in 2019, the same things that needed to be addressed in Malachi's day in many ways 
need to be addressed in our own hearts and lives. So this morning, as we look to God's word, we were looking at this theme where God says, I want you to return to me. And we're recognizing four specific things that God's people were doing wrong in the book of Malachi. And perhaps that might be true even in our own lives today. The second thing we come to today, we saw the first thing last week, and that is we saw specifically because their hearts weren't really in it, even though they were going through the outward motions and they were going to the temple and they were praying and doing all these different things, we began to see that one of the major issues with them is that they were bringing worthless worship to God. Instead of bringing God their best, instead of bringing God because of their love for God and their desire to worship him and honor him, they were giving God basically the leftovers of their life. They were looking at the blind animals, the diseased animals, the lame animals, the animals they didn't even want, and they were bringing it to God and basically saying, that's what you're worth, God. You're worth nothing more than our leftovers. That's what they were doing. They were offering worthless worship. But then today, God brings us to a second major issue that they had with him, and that is that they were disrespecting God, disrespecting God. Now, I'm curious this morning, when you think of the word disrespect, what do you think of, right? Like when I think of the word disrespect, the first thing I begin to think of is I begin to think about a parental type of relationship, right? Maybe as a parent, you have felt disrespected before, or maybe as a child, you know, there was at least a day or two where maybe you were disrespectful. Anybody could admit to that perhaps? When I think of disrespect, that's what I think of. I asked my children last night around the dinner table. Now, Let me ask you guys, when you think about disrespecting God, what do you think of? I asked the deacons this morning during our prayer time, when you think of disrespecting God, what do you think of? Most of us, when we think of disrespecting God, we think of someone who basically kind of turns up our nose to God and we say, God, I'm gonna live however I want to. We think of someone who basically rejects God's word, they don't keep their promises to God, and they are just completely bent on living for themselves. That's kind of disrespecting God and rejecting him, if you will. But did you know that in Malachi chapter two, God gives us a gauge to examine whether or not we are disrespecting him. And can I tell you that the gauge he gives us is probably not what you first think of when you think of disrespect for God. I would ask you to consider something for just a moment because I believe in it, God is wanting us to see something this morning. That question is simply this. How are you treating others in your life today? Specifically, how do you treat, how do you act towards brothers and sisters in Christ? And then secondly, how are you treating your spouse that God has given you today? Because God tells us in the book of Malachi how we treat our brothers and sisters in Christ and how we treat others ultimately reveals a great deal about our treatment and our relationship with God. I want to ask you if you're able to stand to your feet, would you do so this morning as we look at the subject, disrespecting God. The Bible says this in Malachi chapter two. God asked this question. Do we not all have one father Has not one God created us? Here's the question. Why then do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign God. As for the man who does this, God says, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do, God says. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? And here's what God says. Because the Lord has been a witness between you And the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take then, take heed then to your spirit, and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Verse 16. For I 
hate. What's the next word? Divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. And him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? In that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this morning, for this time together. Thank you for the authority of your word. God, I pray that you would speak so clearly to our hearts and lives today. God, I confess as we look at your word today and we hear exactly what you have spoken, God, in many ways, it's difficult for us to accept. In some ways, it's difficult even to preach. Not because your word is unclear or because your stance is wrong, but because our culture is so far from what you spoke. And, and fr frankly, Father, even the temptations of our own flesh at times are, are, are such a, a, at war with what you have spoken. And so, God, I pray today that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, may we receive your word completely. And God, where we're wrong and where we've given in to our own flesh, where we've given in to the lies of, of Satan, God, I pray that we would repent and I pray that we would return to you and that we would experience the transformation, the change, the healing that can happen only through a relationship with you. Have your way in our hearts and lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. you. may be seated this morning. This morning, as we read God's word and open it, I realize today that there are some themes and there are some words and there are some specific statements of God that frankly can be very difficult for us to grasp and to accept even this morning. No doubt as we read these words of scripture and we read God's stance on certain things, it would be easy for us to say, but wait a second, pastor, man, it's 2019. It's, it's a totally new day. It's been a long time since those words were spoken. Surely God's changed his stance on those things. But I remind us this morning that even though culture has changed and all the fashions and fads have changed and all the technologies and means of communications have changed, I remind us this morning, God has not changed and his word has not changed. God is still God and his word is still authoritative. And so instead of me trying to manipulate and twist God's word to fit what I want to condone, instead, I need to look to God's word, let God's word be the authority in my life and let myself be the one that be changed by humbling myself, by repenting where I've done wrong and by seeking his grace, his help, and his healing where it's needed. In the book of Malachi, we saw last week that the basis for everything that went wrong for God's people was one simple fact. And that simple fact is that they forgot and lost sight of God's love for them. In Malachi chapter one, God speaks and he says, listen, I have loved you. He says it past tense. He looks at his people and he says, listen, I have loved you. And it's in essence, he's trying to say to them, I want you to remember how good I've been to you, how faithful I've been to you, how I have blessed you, how I've made you a people. I want you to know I have loved you. But instead of receiving that statement as truth, they begin to argue with God. And they begin to look back at God and say, oh God, yeah, you say you love us. How have you loved us? What have you done for us lately? How are you proving that in my life today? The simple reality is they lost sight of God's love for them. And because they lost sight of God's love for them, it began to manifest itself in several sinful and unhealthy ways in their life. It manifested itself in how they worshiped God, but it also manifested itself in how they dealt with others in their life. In fact, the Bible tells us that they, there's a word that's used here repeatedly in Malachi chapter two, and it's the word treacherously. That's not a word perhaps that you use very often. I doubt in any social media post or phone conversations lately, you've used the word treacherously. But the fact of the matter is it is a word and it's an accurate description of what was happening in that moment. The word treacherously literally means to act deceitfully, unfaithfully, and even dangerously. And God looks at them immediately and says, listen, the way you are acting towards others is deceitful, it is unfaithful, and it is dangerous. But ultimately, it also is impacting my relationship with you. So God says... You're disrespecting me. You have profaned my name is what God says in Malachi chapter two. 
And they say, but God, how have we profaned you? How have we disrespected you? We haven't turned up our nose to you. We haven't falsely accused you. God, how have we shown disrespect for you? And God says, you've done so in three specific ways. I want you to notice with me from Malachi chapter two, three ways that we show God disrespect. Number one, we disrespect God when we mistreat our siblings, our siblings. The Bible says in verse 10, do we not all have one father? Has not one God created us? Then why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? We disrespect God when we mistreat our siblings. Parents, if you want a good line to quote from the sermon, that's it right there. Go tell your kids this week, okay? Uh, when, you when you mistreat your siblings, you're disrespecting God. Well, when I think about growing up, I grew up in Alabama. I'm the oldest of four children. There's lots of different pranks that we pulled on each other. There's lots of times as the oldest of four siblings that we would try to do things to get at each other and to get under each other's, you know, get on each other's nerves and different things. And I can think of a ton of situations, but that's not what the Bible's talking about. It's talking specifically about how we treat one another in the body of Christ. Even in Malachi's day, Malachi spoke about two things in our treatment of siblings. First off, he reminded them of their connection to each other. Malachi starts with this question. He says, do we not all have one father? Now think of this for just a moment. In a general sense, God is the father of all creation because the Bible tells us that God made every human being, that we are fearfully and we are wonderfully made. God would look at the Jews in this moment and say, do you not have but one father? And many of them can say, oh, yes, Father Abraham, our great ancestor. Yes, the great Father Abraham, he's our father. But that's not what Malachi was speaking of. Malachi was speaking of God and specifically his role in creation because he asked the next question, has not one God created us? Now think of this for just a moment. Before Malachi addresses anything else, he wants them to recognize that they are equal in their position before God. So often in our culture, we like to amount, uh, apply status to people based upon their job or based upon um, their, uh, I don't know, their net worth or their position in, their, 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 in society. Or we might even uh, provide uh, status to people based upon some race or some crazy means. But that's not how God sees it. We are equal in our standing before God. It doesn't matter where we're from. It doesn't matter what our job is. It doesn't matter how much money we make. What Malachi is wanting them to see is we have one father and one creator. That is God himself. Now, remember, Malachi is speaking directly to the Jews. These were God's chosen people. These are the people that God sovereignly chose and placed his love upon them, had a plan that through the Jews, he would send his son to be the savior of the world. These are God's chosen people. They would not have been even a people and certainly not have been blessed if it weren't for the provision and the protection and the favor of God. God was in a covenant relationship with him, one that they could not deny and one that they could not ignore. So the Bible tells us that Malachi wants them to recognize we're connected to each other. It's not just that you're over here and I'm over here. He's looking at his fellow Jews and he's saying, we are God's people. We are God's children. We are part of God's covenant relationship. In the same way that God would say that to the Jews, I'm reminded this morning that God says that to all who are believers in Jesus Christ. Listen to what the Bible says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. It says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. That doesn't mean we need to be childish for the rest of our life, but it does mean that by God's grace, when you believe in Jesus, we are called to be children of God, and the Scripture says, and such we are. Now think of this for just a moment. Before you believe in Jesus Christ, the Bible says, yes, you were born, but you were born, I was born with a sinful nature. And that means that nobody had to teach me how to sin and nobody had to teach you how to sin. We, nobody had to teach us how to lie when we were a child. Nobody had to teach us how to get angry and get upset and do things that we shouldn't. We got it honest because we have a sinful nature. And the Bible says in that sinful state, literally we were separated from God and even enemies of God. Without Jesus, that's who we are. Without Jesus, that's who many in the world are today. They're separated from God. They're not in a right relationship with God. They're literally enemies of God. 
But now God loved us. And he does not desire us that we would stay in that state. So God sent his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins so that we could, the Bible says, be reconciled to God. Jesus came, he died, he gave his life, he rose again from the grave, literally so that all who believe in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. The very moment we believe in Jesus to be our Lord and Savior, the Bible says we're not only forgiven, we're not only saved, we're not only changed by experiences of grace, but we are adopted into the family of God. It says it this way in John chapter 1, verse 12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become what? children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Ephesians chapter two, verse 19 says it this way. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. So just like the Jews, basically, if you will, we're spiritual brothers and sisters. Today, every one of us who believe in Jesus, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. You know what that means? It means our theme song every Sunday should be, we are family. I'm kidding. We are family, right? We're brothers and sisters together. You know, well, I don't like so-and-so. I have a hard time getting along with so-and-so. There's a biblical word for that. Get over it. That's the biblical word, okay? We're family together, brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ. Can you say amen to that? That's awesome. What a joy that is to know. But there's a second word that I think is a powerful word of caution and instruction. It's not just that Malachi reminds them of their connection to each other, but the second thing he reminds them then is about our conduct towards each other. See, see, it's one thing to say, hey, we're part of the family of God. We've been forgiven. We're saved. Hallelujah. This is my brother. This is my sister. But now God begins to show us the importance of how we act towards each other how we relate to each other, how we deal with each other, if you will. And he says here in verse 10, if God is truly your father, then why do you do treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of God with your fathers? Why are you dealing treacherously with your family is what he's saying. Remember that word treacherous means to be deceitful. It's the idea that you're doing something that you know is unfaithful and it's something that is harmful. It's not something that is helpful. It's not something that is healthy. It's not something that is good, but instead it's something that destroys and something that divides and something that brings down. As Christians, we are family. So our actions towards each other should demonstrate such for the glory of God and for the benefit of the watching world. Now, the Bible doesn't tell us anything specific about how they were dealing treacherously with each other. In fact, you either understand that the people of Malachi's day either understood already, they knew in their hearts that it wasn't right, or God just kind of leaves it vague for us to wonder. He doesn't tell us exactly how they were dealing treacherously with each other. Maybe they were just intentionally being very deceitful to each other. Maybe they were harmful to each other by the way that they were gossiping and criticizing. Maybe they were promising things that they had no intentions of keeping. Maybe they were saying, oh yeah, brother, we'll pray for you with no intentions to actually follow through. Maybe they were just forgetting one another and not looking out for each other. Maybe they weren't really showing care and concern for the needs of people around them. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us specifically. Many scholars, because Malachi and Nehemiah ministered at the same time to the same people, many people, many scholars believe that Malachi, when he mentions this, he's referring to the sins of God's people in Nehemiah chapter 5. In Nehemiah chapter 5, what we find is, is we find God's people, some of which that were in a very privileged position, instead of using their position to bless and to encourage and to serve and to support the body of Christ, instead, they began to take advantage of other people in the body of Christ. And, and, And specifically, instead of using their wealth as a means of blessing and providing and helping and supporting, instead, they used it as a means of getting a further foothold and taking everything they could from those who were poor. And God's people in Nehemiah chapter 5, those who were poor, literally had to choose between slavery and starvation. We don't know the details, but what we do know in that context is, what we see is God's people, they weren't caring for each other. They weren't uh, showing concern and compassion for each other. They weren't loving each other. They weren't practicing Philippians 2, looking out for the needs of others. They were looking out for themselves. And God says that their actions were not merely a sin against their brother or sister, 
but they were a sign of their disrespect for God. Why? How is it that my actions towards you and your actions towards me can demonstrate something about the nature of my relationship and treatment of God? Here's how. The purpose of our relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ, yes, it is to encourage, and yes, it is to love. And my hope is that my relationship with you will bless you, and my hope is that your relationship with me will bless me. But it's not about you, and it's not about me. Our relationship as brothers and sisters in Christ is about the name and the exaltation and the glory of Jesus Christ. In other words, church, our relationships with each other should be so sincere and so kind and so loving that it would be a witness to the world around us. In other words, when the world sees believers from Crosslink Community Church, they should look at our love and care for each other and say, I've never seen anything like that. Now, sadly, when much of the world sees the church, instead they'll look at the church and see, that's no different than the politicians in Washington, D.C. That, that's no different than the than the dog-eat-dog world that we live in where everybody's trying to get one up on each other. That's sadly what the world often sees when they see the church. Our love for each other and our treatment of each other should be a representation of how God's love radically transforms and changes those who call upon him. Jesus said it this way, John 13, verse 35, by this all men will know that you're my disciples, by your what? Your love for one another. So God's calling us to recognize how our treatment of our brothers and sisters, our siblings, manifests itself and impacts our relationship with God. So the first thing we see is this, we disrespect God when we mistreat our siblings. The second thing we see from Malachi chapter two is this, we also dishonor and disrespect God when we mistreat our spouse. Now, what God's about to show us in Malachi chapter 2, it's clear. It's black and white. But it is hard for many of us to receive in 2019. In fact, I would imagine today that some of the things that you're about to hear this morning are probably going to make you uncomfortable. So on the count of three, can we just all sigh? One, two, three. Glad we got that out of the way, Okay. If what you are about to hear makes you uncomfortable, to that, please understand what I say is this, to God be the glory. Because I'm thankful that we love and we serve and we worship a God who loves us so much that in spite of our sin and in spite of our wrong, he speaks truth into our heart and life so that I can repent and I can be right with him so that he can mold me and shape me to be the vessel he wants me to be. Max Cato used to say it this way. He'd say, God loves you just the way you are. And I'm thankful that he does, but he loves you so much. He refuses to let you stay that way. God changes us when we come to him. And so what God wanted them to see is how we treat our spouse is a picture of how ultimately we are treating God. Now think of it for just a moment. In verse 10, Malachi says, listen, the way you're treating your siblings uh, is affecting your relationship with God. But he was very vague. He didn't go into the details of what they were doing that was treacherous behavior towards each other. He kind of left it up for our imagination in many ways. But when it came to the marriage relationship, God was very specific on what was going on. He wasn't vague. He didn't leave it to the imagination. He told us exactly what was going on. And I believe from it this morning, there are several things that we need to hear. We need to accept maybe some things that we need to repent of but certainly some things that we need to guard in our lives. Now, I'm saying specifically this morning, we dishonor God and we mistreat our spouse, recognizing that God in that day was speaking directly to the men. God was speaking in this moment directly to the husbands because in that culture in that day, that was exactly who needed the message. But I'm saying today the spouse, not because I disagree with God, but because many of the things that they were dealing with culturally in that day, today in our culture applies both to husband and wife. Now God's command certainly would have applied to both, but it was the men who were straying. In our culture today, frankly, there in many ways, the same struggles that were simply struggles of the men oftentimes in the Old Testament are common amongst both male and females in 2019. 
So we must be careful of how we treat our spouse. Malachi chapter 2, the Bible tells us in verse 11 and following that Judah had dealt treacherously with God. And very specifically in verse 13, the Bible tells us that they were coming before God and they were bringing their worship and they were bringing their offering and they're even crying and they're weeping before God. Oh God, we love you. God, we worship you. God, we want to give you our best. And God says, I want nothing to do with your worship. I'm not receiving your offering. God even says in this context, I don't care about your tears. You have committed an abomination against me. You've committed a grave sin against me. And they're looking there in this moment of religious worship. God, what could we possibly have done that would make you so upset? God, what would we possibly have done that have shown you this kind of disrespect? God, why would you ever say that? And God says, quit looking at me and look at your spouse. Because I want you to consider for a moment how you have treated your spouse. And then... Perhaps we'll talk about worship. I think it's important for us to remember this morning that marriage is the very first institution that God ever created and ordained. At the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2, the Bible tells us that God made Adam, and of course from that he made from Adam he made Eve, and the Bible says in Genesis chapter 2 verses 23 to 24, God speaks and then Adam speaks and Adam says, "This is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man." And then God speaks his word of affirmation. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become, what? One flesh. He's speaking of the physical union here. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Genesis 1, 27, 28 summarizes it this way. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And here's the summary statement. God blessed them. Regardless of what the culture says, regardless of what the day is, regardless of our own personal experiences, in other words, it was God who designed marriage and his plan from the very beginning was that there would be one man with one woman faithfully loving one another for life. That may sound archaic. That may not be popular. It may not even be at the moment what you want. But God has not changed. His word has not changed. His plan and his will have not changed. So often because of the things that we try to redefine, frankly, and try to condone, we get it all confused. But God's plan is very simple. Our confusion reminds me of the little boy that went to a wedding one day and he was riding home with his dad and he just looked completely flustered. He looked completely confused. And his dad said, son, what's going on? What are you thinking? And he said, daddy, I don't ever want to get married. I can't get married in the future. And he said, what do you mean, son? He said, daddy, I, I just can't do it. I cannot be married one day. And he said, son, why not? And he said, well, daddy, that preacher at that wedding said, I have to have 16 wives. And the dad said, what in the world? He said, he did. That pastor said, I need four better and I need four worse, four richer and four poorer. We get it all confused and it all gets rambled and jumbled together. But here's the reality. God's plan is God's plan. God's word is God's word. And it is so clearly. So God looks at them. They're worshiping. And he says, no, time out. Hold up. Stop your fake worship. Stop your outward motion. There's an abomination that's been committed. Let me address it. And then he begins to speak about their treatment of their spouse. Three things I want you to consider. Number one, I want you to consider the desires that disrespect God the desires that disrespect God. Verse 11, the Bible tells us that the men of Judah had profaned the sanctuary of the Lord. How? By marrying the daughter of a foreign God. Now stop for just a moment. God's people in that culture, these men that God is speaking of in this moment were men who were already married. They were married to Jewish women now, remember in this moment that God's chosen people were the Jews. The gospel had not gone all throughout the world at this point. Jesus had not come and died on the cross for the sins of the world. He had not commissioned his disciples to take the gospels yet to the ends of the earth. And so the Bible tells us very, very clearly that God's people had a relationship with him. But in Deuteronomy chapter 7, God had given a very clear word of instruction. And that word of instruction to his people was this. You're called to be holy, set apart for me as I am holy. And with that holiness, God gave several instructions, but one of those instructions was not to marry foreign women. 
It wasn't about race, as some people try to make it. It wasn't about racism and there being some better. No, it was about a relationship with God. The Jewish people were God's chosen people. They were in a covenant relationship with him. But those of the foreign lands didn't know God. They didn't have a relationship with God. In fact, not only did they not have a relationship with God, they worshiped foreign pagan gods. And many of them in that process, there were all sorts of wicked practices that were involved in the worship of these false gods. And so God looks at them and he had told them in Deuteronomy chapter seven, don't marry someone in this group, if you will. Literally Deuteronomy seven verse four, he says, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Deuteronomy tells us that in chapter seven. It's interesting to note that all the way to the New Testament now, 2 Corinthians chapter six, God still gives words of instruction specifically about marrying believers. The Bible says this, don't be bound together with unbelievers for what partnership has righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? What harmony has Christ with Belial and what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? When God says that these men were marrying daughters of a foreign God, what he's describing is this. As God's people were establishing the city of Jerusalem, the temple and the city walls and all the different things that were needed for their lives, they didn't just stay in Jerusalem. They were often going all throughout the land around them, looking at times to expand territory, looking at times to find supplies and resources to bring them back. And as the men were going throughout the foreign lands around them, here's what began to happen in the hearts and lives of God's men. They began to meet foreign women. And they began to desire foreign women. They began to look longingly towards them and lustfully towards them. And they began, no doubt, to fantasize and to think about their own fulfillment and how certain things about their life would be better if they were with them and if they didn't have the burden back at home. And they began to think about how life was better and greener pastures were over there. In their desires and in their flesh, they began to think about how their life would be so much more satisfying and so much more fulfilling if they would move outside of the marriage covenant to something that God had already spoken against. In fact, the Bible makes it clear from their practice that from their actions that they not only were desirous of these foreign women, but they began to pursue marriage with them thinking that they could do whatever they wanted to do and there would be no consequences. It's amazing how Satan is so powerful at bringing us blindly to situations that we think we know better than God. Listen to what God said in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 27 and 29. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is the one who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her will not go unpunished. So, so God is saying, listen, the desires that you are having, that you are fulfilling, where basically you're putting your wife aside and you're pursuing this other relationship on the side and you're completely neglecting the vow that you've made, the covenant relationship that you've entered. You're neglecting the companion that I have given you and you're pursuing this other relationship. He says, listen, it is disrespectful towards me. The desires that you are pursuing that are not of me are disrespectful to me. Matthew Henry summarized it best. The Jewish men dealt treacherously with them. They did not perform their promises to their wife, but took in concubines to share in the affection that was due to their wives only. I said, Pastor, oh my goodness, I can't believe you're saying all this. Please understand this morning. In our pornographic, saturated culture, we need to be reminded that God calls us First, to our relationship with him. And then secondly, to faithfully love and fulfill our covenant to the spouse of our youth. There are so many things in our culture. Listen, I realize that even in the context of innocent things like social media and Facebook, there are all these images of the good life and how someone has so much life, so much better. And, and, and it can be easy, ladies, to look back and think of that old flame or that old friend. Well, if only I'd have made a different decision, my life would have been so much better in this situation. And why can't I have these things too? And that's exactly the trap the enemy wants you to be on. And men, we live in a culture, frankly, where we can't get away from the images. I mean, the, the emails, the spam, the junk, everywhere you go and turn, there are all these different things that make things so available and so simple and it seems so innocent and it seems so harmless. But I'm telling you, it is fool's gold. It's a trap of the enemy. Why? Because he's a thief who comes to steal, who comes to kill, who comes to destroy. 
He wants to do nothing but to destroy your life and destroy your marriage. Ultimately, why? Because he knows in doing so, he'll rob God of the glory that he can reveal through your marriage. That's what, when we give in to those lies, we find ourselves exactly where my good friend John Keebler says it this way, Satan always gives you what he promised and everything you never wanted. Man, it looks so appealing. It's not gonna be that big of a deal. And then we pursue and we find out there was a lot more to it than what he promised. Secondly, we see the deception that disrespects God. Now picture the scene. These guys are basically stepping out of their covenant relationship and they're pursuing their, their natural sinful desires with foreign women. But guess where they're at on Sunday morning? They're back in the temple worshiping God. They're coming to the temple to worship. <laughs> they're coming and they're singing praises. They're bringing their animals in the Old Testament for sacrifice. They're coming before God and they're worshiping God and they're even crying and weeping. I mean, they're emotional and, and man, they're just pouring their heart out to God. And God says, time out. Pastor Scott, put the guitar down. Tell the band to sit down. I won't have it. God, what do you, what do you mean? What, what do you mean you don't want us to worship? What do you mean you want to accept our worship? God says, it's all a deception. In essence, you have an outward appearance of godliness, but you are ungodly in the way that you are treating your spouse. It's a very sobering statement. Perhaps God would have accepted their offering if they first came with a heart of repentance and acknowledgement. God, forgive us, we have sinned against you. God, we have been wrong. We have gone the wrong direction. We, we were in the wrong. God, forgive us and cleanse us. God, would you have mercy on us? But instead, they just came with an outward form of religion and God begins to speak and to reveal to them the deception that was going on. An outward appearance of godliness and yet an ungodliness in their own personal life and the way they were treating their spouse. Then the third thing I want you to see about this relationship is that we see that, dis that divorce dishonors God. Notice what the scripture says. God says in verse 16, it's really just a summary statement. He says this statement, but he says it so clearly. He says, for I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. Apparently what was happening is that many of these Jewish men were so enthralled with these foreign women that they determined what would be best to do to continue their relationships is that they should divorce their godly wife Divorce her, cut this relationship off, and now I should marry her because this would now make it right. That's what they were doing. So they go through the process. What happened is, in essence, is they do that. They, they, they completely divorce their wife, the wife of their youth, likely the mother of their children. They divorce them, and then they, 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 they put a ring on this. They marry this, marry this woman. They begin this marital relationship, in essence, saying, well, this will be okay in the eyes of God. But God still says something. He says, I hate divorce. Instead of trying to justify their actions, instead of trying to cover up their actions, what they should have been doing was coming before God broken in repentance. God, we have sinned against you. Their heart and their attitude, their disposition should have been the same as David in Psalm 51 when they come broken and they come asking God, would you restore to us the joy of our salvation? They come before God saying, as David said, Lord, I've sinned against you and you only have I sinned. God, be merciful to me. But instead, they convinced themselves that they could continue on with their actions, divorcing one wife, marrying another, covering it up, all is well and good. So, Pastor, what are you saying? I'm saying to you this morning that God says, I hate divorce. The hurt that it causes in the lives of those who face it is unimaginable. The damage and the pain, the challenges that it brings to the children is something that we may never fully know the extent of. But greater than that 
It is a poor witness of Christ to the community, to the world around us. Marriage is intended to be a picture of Christ's unconditional, unending, unchanging love for his people. And therefore, if his love is the foundation and the focus of that home, there is almost nothing that can't be overcome or transformed or changed when both are surrendered to God. He said, Pastor, does that mean that you know, there's never going to be divorce or whatever? No, the Bible makes it clear that there are times of divorce. And even though God does not like it and God hates it, he despises it in every shape or form, there are three different specific things in Matthew chapter 19, 1 Corinthians 7, and 1 Peter chapter 3, where the Bible explains those things. But here's the reality. Even though the Bible allows divorce on those rare occasions, it never endorses it. Never. It never says, great, now go do this. In fact, instead, it speaks of God's hatred towards it and the pain that it causes those who follow through with it. In fact, I would say to you this morning that every person that I've ever known that's had to go through that difficult time, if they truly know the Lord and love the Lord, when they walk through that painful situation, they walk through it with much and deep grief. Not only because of the pain that they're experiencing, but because they know the grief that has brought the heart of their father. At the same time, I've known many people who profess to be Christians who have looked at divorce. Frankly, they've come to me expecting, expecting that I would condone their actions. And in nearly every case and every situation, I've had to look at them graciously, but I've had to remind them of what God actually says because they were so out of line. So, Pastor, what are you saying? I'm saying that the treatment that we have towards our spouse radically impacts our relationship with God. Third thing, we dishonor God. If you're still with me, would you say all right? right. Praise the Lord. We dishonor God when we mistreat our siblings, when we mistreat our spouse, but thirdly, when we mistreat our Savior directly. See, sometimes we think that our relationships with others don't really have that big of a deal in our relationship with God or our relationships with our spouse. It's just our relationship with our spouse. I mean, it's just me and it's just her. No, it's actually the Lord that's involved in this situation. It is a covenant relationship. But we also disrespect God when we mistreat specifically our Savior. Look at verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words, yet you say, how have we wearied him? He says, in that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? i got to say this quickly, and we'll wrap up our time together. But let me say two things they were doing. Because they were mistreating each other and mistreating their spouse, they naturally then began to mistreat the Lord. And they did so by their words and by their actions. Two things they did that mistreated the Lord. Number one, they rejected his word. They rejected his word. They basically said, God, we know what you have said. We know what you've spoken. We know what you've spoken against, but we're going to do our own thing anyway. They rejected God's word. And secondly, when you reject God's word, the end result is this. You end up relying on your own reasoning and understanding. They mistreated the Savior by rejecting his word and then by relying on their own understanding and their own Reasoning. The Bible says it this way in Proverbs chapter 14, verse 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So picture the scene for just a moment. Many of these men were abandoning their marriages to pursue these other relationships. And the Bible says in verse 17, they began to say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. Hey, what's wrong with this? I mean, this is a good relationship, and I'm happy. I I don't have all the burdens of my previous marriage and all the challenges that were there. I mean, life is great, and this feels good, and life is wonderful. So God might have said it was evil, but since he seems to be okay with it, now this is good. Furthermore, verse 17, where is the God of justice? If this was really evil, wouldn't God be judging me right now? I mean, if this was displeasing to God, wouldn't there be consequences right now? Because right now, there are no consequences. It feels great. Life is wonderful. I'm doing my own thing. Thank God for the freedom I have. This must be good. Little did they realize that God's lack of judgment wasn't because he condoned their actions. God's lack of judgment was not because he approved of their sin. God had still called it sin. His word had never changed. God's lack of judgment was simply because God in his grace was giving them an opportunity and time to repent of their sin and be right with him. 
they thought that God's action of grace and time meant that God condoned their sin. When in reality, God was just giving them an opportunity to acknowledge what he had already said, repent of their sin, and be made right with him. They rejected God's word. They said, hey, this feels pretty good. We're good. We got this. Everything's under control. They relied on their own understanding. This must not be that big of a deal because God's not judging me. But they were simply fooling themselves. So what are the takeaways today from Malachi chapter 2? Let me close quickly with these four simple things. What does God want us to do with the message we've heard today? First and foremost, I would say this. I believe wholeheartedly what God is wanting us to see this morning is this. God is calling many of us to repent of our sin and to return to him. You know what's interesting to me is that the entire book of Malachi centers around one verse of scripture, one key theme. It's Malachi chapter three, verse seven. When God addresses these sins and he addresses these issues, he addresses the wrong way that they're going, but he doesn't bring words of judgment and he doesn't say, I'm sick of you. And he doesn't say that I'm done with you. And he doesn't say there's no hope for you. Here's what he says. He basically says to them, I love you. Return to me, come to me and I'll return to you. In other words, the key for our situation, the hope for our situation, the healing for our marriage, the healing spiritual that's needed, it's not found in religion. It's not found in outward works. It's not found in coming to church. The key to it all is found in a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. God looks at these people and he's done, he doesn't say that he's fed up, but here's what he says. He says, I love you. Return to me and I'll return to you. For many of us, the first application that we hear this morning, listen, if you hear parts of that message and it offends you and it kind of rubs you the wrong way, it's not because I rubbed you the wrong way. I'm just telling you, this is what God has said. So if, it, if it's like salt in that wound and it convicts and it prods a little bit, I'm telling you, by God's grace and with his help, that's the Holy Spirit. So return to him. Second thing, if you hear this morning and say, Pastor, I'm so thankful by God's grace, I, Man, I haven't gone down that direction, but you're right. I'm aware of the temptations and I'm aware of the pressures and you're right, the culture around us, man, it makes it so easy. Number two, here's a practical application. Guard your heart. You ever think, oh, I'm good. I'm not gonna fall into that temptation. Take heed lest you fall. The scripture says it so very, very clearly that we must take heed to our spirit that we don't deal treacherously. I've never, ever, 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 ever sat with a couple in premarital counseling that have said, yep, in five years, we're gonna deal treacherously with each other, ever, ever. But it happens because we often fail to guard our heart, our mind, our eyes, our thoughts. Third, practical application, pursue your spouse. We're all pursuing something. It might be the career, it might be the goals, the dreams, whatever the case. Pursue your spouse, and I mean that in the sense of pursuing them relationally. Pursue them in the way that you support them and encourage them. Pursue your spouse intimately. So pastor, you're talking to the men, aren't you? Do you, do you, you? My husband needs to hear that? I'm saying that to you as well, ladies. Pursue your spouse. There's a reason why numerous times when God speaks of the wife of your youth to the men, he reminds him, this is your companion. She's to be there with you. You're to be in close relationship with her. It's amazing how if each of us in our marital relationships will value and pursue that relationship above some of the many other things that we're pursuing, how quickly we will see God turn our marriages around. Number four, Seek to do good for all people, especially believers. Don't deal treacherously with one another's brothers and sisters in Christ. Galatians chapter 6, verse 10 says it this way. So then while we have the opportunity, you won't always have it, but while you have the opportunity, let us do good to all people and especially to those who are of the household of faith. God said to the people of Malachi's day, you are disrespecting me. How, God? We're, we're worshiping you. We come to the temple, man. We're praying. We're offering. And God says, yes, but you're mistreating your family. You're mistreating your spouse. And you're even actually mistreating me. This morning, I don't know where you're at today. 
But I will tell you this. The answer for us, if we are in any of those places of mistreatment, is to repent of our sin, return to the Lord, and he will return to us. You know, you're here this morning, maybe you're thinking to yourself, Pastor, that is a really, really, really hard message. My prayer is that if God brings conviction to your heart and life, that today will be a day of repentance and deliverance. I would say to you, when it comes to that statement of God saying, I hate divorce, those who truly know the Lord will not only identify with that, but they will amen it because they themselves know that it's true. There are some of you here today, you have gone through that pain and that grief that comes with divorce. And there are some of you here today, frankly, that, man, that happened five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years, 20 years, whatever the case, and God has been so gracious to you as you have sought the Lord and as you've drawn near to your relationship with him, God's brought you to a place of health and to a place of healing. I want to encourage you this morning, if that's you, I know it might be hard and it might at times be uncomfortable, but don't be silent about your testimony of how God has worked in your life. Because as God's brought hope and healing to you, that might be the very testimony and the very truth that someone else in our body needs to hear as they are hurting and struggling. You may be here this morning, and frankly, you're walking through the pain of that right now. And you're kind of wondering, is there hope? Is there peace? Is, is there healing? And what I'm saying to you today ultimately is this, is that with God, all things are possible. Because he loves you and cares for you, I don't know what's been done against you. I don't know what uncertainty that you're facing. But God is not surprised by the hardships that you're facing and everything even that Satan means for evil. As you trust God and walk with God and turn to him, God can work it even together for good. I don't know the hows and I don't know the winds. Only God does. But I know the promise and that promise is that he'll work it all things together for his glory and for our good. But if you're here today and you're not in that place of hurt, man, you're married and things are grand and good and wonderful, or maybe you're praying about the possibility of that one day, I want to encourage you today, set a guard on your heart. Today, commit to be the vessel God wants you to be, to walk with him, to pursue him, because it's only as you pursue him that you can pursue the spouse that God gives you the way that he wants you to. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for this day. Lord, these words, man, they're so powerful. They're so convicting. God, I confess that sometimes the things that are hardest for me to hear are the very things that I need most to hear. God, we do live in a culture that is so saturated by things that do not please you Father, that is especially true as we talk about things of integrity and, and morality, things of holiness. God, when we think about the sexual tone of our culture, when we think about the, the many avenues by which the world paints pictures of the good life, and we think about the many ways that Satan brings temptations of former friends and flames or temptations of some other life that we might want to pursue and God, you tell us in your word there's, there's only one path that's pleasing for you and it's the path that you have outlined for us. And God, I pray that you'd be with us today to help us to realize it doesn't matter how far we've gone, it doesn't matter what we've done. God, if we repent of our sin and humble ourselves before you, you do forgive, you do cleanse. And God, even though sometimes we make an absolute mess and wreck of things, as we surrender to you and in the context of marriage, when we both surrender to you, there's nothing you can't heal. There's nothing you can't change. So God, I pray today for some of us here today who are struggling uh, specifically in our relationship with you because of the waywardness of what we've done, I pray today that today would be a day of repentance and deliverance. God, I pray for couples today that today would be a day of hope and healing where we recognize with God all things are possible where we could move in a powerful way in our lives. That if today would be a day not of offense, but today would be a day of conviction, of repentance, of restoration, 
that day would be the day towards healing. I pray in Jesus' name. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any question about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.